If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, nearing the end of our series going through the book of 1 Peter that we've been in for the last few months. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5 and going through verse 11. So it should be picking up where we left off last week in our series going through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, So 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Should be on the screens behind me if you don't have it yet, but it says this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And as for you, are words that I don't think I have ever heard, followed by something pleasant. I remember them growing up, that my parents would be saying something to someone else, and then they would turn to me and say, and as for you, young man, and then I knew that whatever was for me was not a good thing that was coming my way whenever they said that. It's threatening words when you so often hear, and as for you. It could easily have gone at the beginning of Liam Neeson's phone call and taken. And as for you, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. And as for you, that's what he would have for you. Maybe that's just me, though. Maybe it's just me that when someone has uh, been dealing with someone else and then turns their full attention toward you specifically, and they were saying something different to them, but now they have something different to say to you, there's an element of fear and anticipation that comes with that. Last week, we looked at Peter's instructions primarily for elders, for pastors. It was given to the church, but it was directed specifically at the church's leaders, This week, it feels like the transition between verses 4 and 5 easily could be, and as for you. He said, these things for the elders, for the leaders, for the pastors, but as for you, likewise, you who are younger. It feels like that's how these verses could begin, but the as for you here doesn't end with a threat. It's not something that's menacing or scary. I think it's a sweet reminder of the grace that God has given to these people and how they should live out of that grace. I think this text is on the graces of church members. And in this text, we'll see three gracious aspects of church members, of you who are members of the church that God has given you in his grace. Three gracious aspects of church members. And the first gracious aspect of church members that we see in this text is that church members are gracious people. That's who and what you are. Church members are gracious people. Look back at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You see, you have to be gracious people as church members because you're subject to the elders. Last week, we we saw that Peter is using elder as a title for leaders in the church. He's using a title for the pastors, really for me in this church. So now he pivots from talking to the elders specifically to now in verse 5, talking to everyone else. He says, you who are younger, as a contrast to the term that he used for elder. Really just implying that he's talking to whoever is not an elder, to everyone else. So really in this church, all of you. Everyone else in this room but me is who he's specifically talking about in that beginning of verse 5. But I think he also says, you who are younger here, specifically, I think, to, to highlight something about the church members that he's speaking to. I think non-elders are usually assumed to be younger, to be less mature in the faith than the elders, the pastors, the church leaders are. Now, that may not always be true, Some of you, I know, are certainly wiser than I am. Some of you, I know, are more sanctified, especially in some specific areas, than I am. But in general, when you think of who is supposed to be the most mature person in the room, in the faith, your pastor is who you're supposed to be thinking of. So you who are younger, I think, is supposed to highlight that difference in spiritual maturity. But I think even more so, he says, you who are younger, because he's talking to those who are literally younger. That's part of why he uses these terms for elder and then younger here. I mean, when we think of youth, we almost immediately, subconsciously, think of people who are immature, right? We think of people who are brash, independent, headstrong, prideful. Being young doesn't like require that you are those things. And I'll say particularly here, I am impressed by our young people. Every young person who's come into our church that I've met and I've interacted with that's become a member here, I'm always impressed by the the fervor that they have, the zeal that they have, how serious they are about spiritual things. I don't meet them and go like, man, I don't know how you even like walked in the room today. I don't know how you like made it here. You don't seem like you've got enough going on to be able to like put one foot in front of the other, much less become a church member. That's never really been my interaction with any of our young people. I've always been impressed by them. However, Peter is talking to those who are younger because those who are younger tend to be the ones who are most likely to need this instruction. People who are younger tend to be the ones who are most likely to forget to be subject to the people who are over them. They tend to be the ones who are most likely to say, I know better than he does, than they do. But as a church member, as a non-elder particularly, you who are younger, Peter says that you are to be subject to the elders, to the leaders in the church. He earlier in his letter told wives to be subject to their husbands. He told slaves to be subject to their masters. And now he continues that same frame of reference, that that same idea for church members to be subject to their pastors. But just as it was with wives and servants, that doesn't mean that you always do whatever I say, right? Right? That doesn't mean that I just get a blank check to be able to tell you to do whatever I want you to do, and that means you have to be subject to it because I'm the elder and you are the the younger in this verse. That's not what this means. Particularly if I'm instructing you to sin, that's not what this means. But I think it does show that the initial posture, 
that the first instinct, the first move toward whoever your elders are in the church should be something that shows that you are inclined to please them, to obey them, to respect them, to want what's best for them. When I stand up on a Sunday morning like I am right now and preach you the gospel, you should be eager to hear those words. You should be excited to apply them to your own lives. When I come to you and say that I've been praying about something or that I have an idea for how our church can better fulfill its purpose, to be subject to your elders, I think, means that your first thought should be excitement rather than skepticism. Okay, this isn't blind trust. You you trust but verify, that's true, but you trust first. You're already bought in. You love me. You assume the best of me. You give me the benefit of the doubt first before you say, that's a terrible idea. Say, I'm going to hear him out, and I hope that this is good, before you eventually come back around and go, okay, but you haven't thought about these eight things. It should first be, I'm with you, before you voice your skepticism. And let me say, this isn't something that I'm saying to you guys because of all the times, all the ways that you guys have messed this up. I think we generally do a very good job in this. I mean, we've made several changes since I got here about two years ago. You guys have taken most of these things in stride. There have been a few hiccups here and there, a few meetings that weren't always a loads of fun. But I think in general, you guys have been very open-minded, very excited, at least enough that once I lay out my reasoning for something, then, then you're right there with me. You're, you're doing this. And Peter, I think, is just reminding you that you should start from a place of right there with me. Because I think a good shepherd who is exercising oversight over God's flock is helped by a flock that's easy to oversee. There's a joy to lead and serve that kind of people. So you who are younger, be subject to the elders. But then Peter continues giving instruction that's meant for the church member, but I think it's wide enough, he widens it here, to include the pastor as well. Look back at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I think he's still aimed primarily at the church member. I think he's meaning all of you in a sense that he's saying all of the church members. This isn't a particular thing for any one church member. But I think he also says all of you here to make sure that me, I, the elder in the room, am paying attention because this has to go both ways. I mean, if this is going to work, if I am going to exercise oversight as the shepherd of this particular flock of God, and you as the church members are supposed to be subject to me as the elder in our leadership, then I think humility is a necessary ingredient for both of us in this instance. We have to be clothed in humility toward each other. We have to be wrapped up in it. We have to be marked by it, surrounded by it. If I'm going to shepherd you and you're going to be subject to me, humility is an absolutely necessary ingredient for that. You have to have humility here because you are being shepherded by, you are subject to someone who is also a man. Okay, I am human. I am a sinner saved by grace just like you. There are people in this room who are smarter than I am. There are definitely people in this room who are wiser than I am. There are plenty of people who are better at a thousand different things than I am. And yet, somehow, 
you have to be subject to me and my leadership. That takes humility on your part. If you start from a place of pride that says, you only have to listen to me when I agree with you, whenever I'm right in your mind, then I have no shot to shepherd you as God has called me to do. It just won't happen. It can't happen. Likewise, though, if I am going to shepherd you effectively, I have to remember that though I am your shepherd, I am not your Lord and master. I am not the savior of your soul. I am not your owner. I am not the smartest, most capable, most perfect man in every room that I walk into. And the instant that I start thinking that I am, that is the instant that I lose all ability to be your example. That's the instant that I've stopped serving you by being an example, and I've started to domineer over you as an elder. Verse 3 told me I can't do that. So we both need humility. We have to start from that place if these kind of relational dynamics are going to work. But we also just simply need humility because this is a Christian relationship. This is a Christian endeavor to be pastors and church members. And God is in the business of opposing the proud, but giving grace to the humble. That's how he deals with people. Proverbs 3, 34 just laid this out as a maxim, which is now being quoted here. And it puts the idea this way. It says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. You see, we need humility here because without humility, we won't have the grace of God we need not just as humans to to draw the very breath that we breathe, everything that we do is in the grace of God, but as church members and elders specifically to live together as his people and to make it through the persecution that Peter's preparing his church for whenever he writes this letter. Grace, the unmerited favor of God, that is what we have to have in order to be gracious toward each other as his people. But this grace of God, which looks like humility, that's not the end of our story. We're not humbled. We're not lowly for forever. You certainly aren't going to have to be uh, coming toward me with a posture of humility for forever. Rather, our humility now is a temporary condition which enables us to receive the grace of God both now and later. That's what verse 6 says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So you want the grace of God, you have to be humble to receive it. And humility is one of the few things in life that you just straight up cannot fake. If you're faking it, it's not humility. It's a false humility. It's a, it's a facade of humility. And if you are a Christian, you already know that humility is where the Christian life begins, You already know that humility is where everything starts for you as a Christian. You can't come to God and become a Christian without humility in that instance. It requires humility to turn from your sin, to confess your sin as sin, as evil in the sight of God, to acknowledge that you are not perfect, but that Jesus is, to believe that the righteousness which saves you from the consequences of your sin, it comes to you from him, not from you. Not through you, not because you're worthy of it or because of anything you did. All of that takes humility. It's given to you. You don't earn it. He was perfect. You were not. He brings the life from death. You just bring the death, the sin that caused it. 
When you come to Jesus through the gospel, that all begins with a humility that cannot be faked. God knows. You can't fake your way into being a Christian. You have to actually, in humility, come to him, confessing your sin as sin, believing that he paid the penalty for your sin, and trusting that when you repent from your sin and believe in his sacrifice on your behalf, that you now receive his righteousness, his new life, in the place of your sin and death. You can't do that without humility. So we already know that grace and humility, they're very closely linked. But verse 6 here introduces the idea that this humility is only a precursor to a coming glory for you. It's not ultimate glory. You're always under the mighty hand of God through which all this comes about. It is about him. It's not about you, even in your exaltation. But you will be exalted. You're humble now. You're persecuted now. But there will come a day when who you really are, a child of the king who will reign with him on high, when that will be revealed in its fullness. Humble yourselves now so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And the way that you do that, the way that you humble yourself, what humility looks like in these verses is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's what verse 7 says. Now, some of your Bibles might act like this is kind of a new idea. It might have started a new sentence, maybe even a new paragraph there, as if this is its own separate thing. And that's usually how we like hear this verse in the wild, right? If I, if I see a Facebook meme of this verse, it's like Snoopy, and it just says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, without any context around it. If I read it on a coffee cup, it just has a little flower next to it, and it just says that. And that's true. We should cast all our, all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But in the Greek, all of this is one sentence, particularly six and seven are very closely related. Verse 7 shows us actually how we do what verse 6 told us to do. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You could almost supplant there by casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the way that we humble ourselves before God as church members, as people who are hurtling toward persecution. The way that we do that is by casting all of our worries all of our anxieties on him, on the one who has the mighty hand with which he can save us, the one who cares for us. You see, to worry, to to be racked with anxiety, whether we always see it this way or not, it really is an act of pride whenever you think about it. When I worry over something, it's because I'm starting from the idea that I am in control of what happens. That if I will just think my way through it, if I'll just do the right thing, If I'll just get in a time machine and go back and say that better thing that I should have said, that everything will get better. Worry, anxiety, what it says is, I can fix this, even if we don't realize that that's what it's saying. So then to not worry, but rather to trust in the God who has a mighty hand to save us, who cares for us, that is an act of humility. It's to say, nope, I don't have it but he does, no matter what it is. The verse that's being referenced here is Psalm 55, verse 22, and it says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You see, it's humility that includes you in the group of his righteous people. 
And it's humility which allows you to continue to trust him rather than worry. And that humble attitude, everything that begins and continues in the Christian life is a grace that is given to church members. You see, you are a gracious people because of who he has called you to be and how you have come to him in Christ. But more than just being a gracious people, you are also gracious warriors. That's the second gracious aspect of church members in today's verses. Church members are gracious warriors. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's given this admonition to be sober-minded before in this letter. He said it several times, but now it's for a different reason. Before, it was for the sake of your prayers or because you had to set aside your former sins. Now he says, you have to be sober-minded because you are at war. You have to be sober-minded because you are in the battlefield right now. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because you have an enemy. You have an adversary. Okay, I've never been in war believe it or not. But I have to think that drunk soldiers would be a real problem on the battlefield. People who are not in control of their own minds cannot effectively fight a battle. Okay, let's lower the stakes. Let's not even just say war. Let's just say anything that has an opponent. Let's say a sport. Okay, I know there are some families who uh, at Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving dinner, they go out and they play like a flag football game against each other. Uh, my family doesn't do that. That's a little too active for, for us after the, the lunch that we eat. But uh, there are some families I know who do that. If you are one of those families, try something this year. Don't, don't go too crazy. I'm not advocating that you not be sober-minded in terms of a, a drunken state. I'm just saying maybe take like one too many Benadryl. One too many Benadryl, have a whole bunch of turkey, and then see how effective you are in your family flag football game. I don't think that's going to work out very well. I think your only hope is that you fall asleep before the play starts rather than like while you're in the route. I think that's your only chance there. You have to be sober-minded anytime you have any kind of enemy coming up against you. If you have an adversary, an enemy, an opponent, you have to be sober-minded. You have to pay attention. Okay, that's the only way you're going to win. But remember the stakes here in this verse. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if there is a scenario in which you want to be on your A game, I think that's probably it, right? So you have an adversary, so this, this already isn't easy. You're, you're going to have some opposition. You're going up against someone who wants to stop you. It's not just that you have an adversary, though. It's that your adversary is the devil, Okay, the accuser, Satan himself. And I can't imagine an adversary worse than that. Like if I'm picking teams of who I want to go up against, I think you could present me with pretty much any other adversary and I would take them over Satan. But you don't even get Satan like on an off day. This isn't Satan like in a good mood. This isn't Satan like when everything is going well and he just says, ah, I'll let this one slide. You've got him when he's hungry. He is prowling around like a lion. He is roaring 
and scaring you like a lion would do. He's actively seeking someone to devour. And if you're not sober-minded and watchful, if you're not paying attention, then guess who is on the menu? You. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Because you have an enemy. You are in a fight. But Peter doesn't tell you this just so you can prepare to give up and say, like, well, that sounds hard. I'm done. He's not letting you know to pay attention so that at the proper time, you can collapse into the fetal position and just hope for the best. He says to resist the devil. He says to fight back. He says, you're in a fight, so be a warrior. John Owen says something similar when he's talking about the Christian's fight against sin in his classic book, The Mortification of Sin. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, Satan, your enemy, he wants to kill you. So you have to fight him or you're just going to lose. Resist him. You're in a fight. I have never been in a fight. I've always been able to just say one extra word and be able to get my way out of it. But my understanding of how fights work is that it doesn't take two people to agree for a fight to start. All it takes is one person. And then guess what? You are in a fight. It's not a nuclear weapon. Both people don't have to turn their keys at the same time. If one person decides they're in a fight with me, then I'm in a fight with them. I don't have an option. You get hit in the face, that's a fight. Your only option is, am I going to win or lose this fight? Not, am I going to have or not this fight? You are in a fight. So be watchful. Be sober-minded. Peter says to resist the devil, to fight back so that you'll win the fight that you're in. And James, when he's talking about these same themes, when he's quoting some of these same passages, he says that when you fight back, guess what? You're going to win. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's like he's a bully that once you fight back, just decides, you know what? This isn't worth it. So resist him. It's not an easy fight. It's a hard fight. It's a constant fight but it's a fight that you can, through the Spirit, win. And when you resist Him, when you're in this fight, when you do fight back, you can know that you are not alone. You can stand up to Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in the fight. Every Christian is with you and is fighting the same exact battles that you're in. And that should allow us to have the courage to know that resisting the one who wants, us, wants to devour us, that's possible. It's been done, not just perfectly by Jesus, but in some sense successfully by every Christian who has ever lived. Okay, we all right now, all of us in this room, all of us church members who are living the Christian life, we are having to wage war against our flesh, against our sin against our adversary, the devil, who is seeking to devour us. But guess what? We not only will win when he calls us to his eternal glory, which we'll get to in a second, but we are winning now, today, in this moment. Look around. You are not alone in this room. 
There are other people here. There are other people in faithful churches like ours in our town, in our state, in our country, in our world, in this time, 2023, and in all times, all the faithful people who have been Christians throughout this time. Your being here this morning, that is an act of war against the devil who wants to devour you. And your presence in this room shows that you are winning because you're here. You're worshiping, you're praying, you're reading, you're hearing. You're focused on the gospel this morning. You may be bruised and burned when you walked in, but you're here. And Jesus won't break you at your weakest point. You may be far off, you may be near, but Christ has come near to you. You may be believing, you may be struggling in unbelief, but he will help you believe. You certainly are a sinner, but Christ also certainly is or can be your Savior. So resist the devil as a gracious warrior, knowing that you are not alone in your fight. Okay, I'm with you. We are with you. Christ is with you. Church members, the, the other people in this room, we are gracious warriors. But finally, the third gracious aspect of church members is that church members are in the grace of God. Church members are in the grace of God. That's how we exist. Look at verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the God of all grace has called you into his grace. He's called you into his life. You may be suffering now. You are suffering now. You're going to suffer more. But Peter's trying to right-size your perspective on the persecution that you go through as a Christian. He acknowledges, he agrees that you do suffer, that you are suffering. But he says that suffering in this final part of the letter is not the focus. He's talked throughout the letter about the suffering to come. He's tried to prepare the church to experience it, to, to not be surprised by the fiery trials. But now, as he begins to bring his letter to a close, he doesn't forget the suffering. But his point is that there's more than just that suffering for you. There's something past that suffering for you. After you have suffered a little while. I mean, it feels like forever while you're in it, yes? But it's just a little while. It could be 60, 70 years, but it's just a little while. It's not the end. There's something for you after that pain. And that something is the plan and call of the God of all grace. The God of all grace. The eternal one who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The one with the mighty hand which is strong to save his people. The one who has eternal glory to spare that he's called you into. The one who is grace all the way through. Who is exceeding in mercy and steadfast in love and faithfulness toward his people. The God of all the grace that there is. For there is no grace apart from him. He has called you. That call we saw all the way back in the beginning of Peter's letters. It came according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
He has called you to salvation. He saved you from your sins. But that's not really Peter's focus here. He's not talking about a, a previous call that you had in the past. He's talking about a future call, that which he is now currently drawing you toward. He's calling you home to his eternal glory. That in Christ, through Christ, you are able to partake in the glory of the God of all, the creator, the Lord of all creation, his own glory. That you are so his, you are so united to his son, that his glory is now your glory. It's eternal, it's not going anywhere. It won't run out, it won't fade, it won't end because it didn't begin. And now you have a part in it. And though you've suffered, when you reach that glory to which he's called you, he himself will restore you. Okay, that suffering you experience, it won't matter anymore. That pain, it won't matter anymore. That persecution, the fight that you spent a lifetime in resisting the devil, its marks, there won't be there anymore. You're restored. You're exactly who and what you should have always been in his presence. And you belong there. He confirms you there. Though you are absolutely in a place that you have no right to be. Though you're in a place you don't deserve to even see, much less dwell in for forever. That place he has confirmed is your home. There's no imposter syndrome in heaven. Maybe you're not like me, but I find myself in most places, in most groups, feeling like I just don't quite fit. Like this isn't my spot, like I'm in someone else's chair. Peter said that all of us as Christians have a little bit of that to us in this world, that we are strangers and sojourners. We're aliens and foreigners in a world that is not our home. But when we do arrive home, when we are called to his eternal glory in Christ, all of that goes away. In an instant, we are confirmed in his presence. The master of the house calls us and shows us to our chair. Okay, in my home, I am a spot guy. I have spots. This is where I sit. This is where I stand. This is where I wait. This is what I do in this point. I have spots throughout our house. If I didn't have a toddler that simply would not allow it, I would have a spot where I eat dinner every day. Because it's consistent, I know. This is where I go, this is where I sit. And that would be the case, except for the times whenever she walks up and says, that's mine now. I say, okay, well, I guess it is. As a gift for me finishing my PhD a few weeks ago, my wife got me a recliner, my very own chair. And it is my spot. And I love having that spot in my house. There have been times in the last few weeks since I got that chair that I have been out with people who I like, doing something I enjoy, and the thought has come into my head, I wish I was in my chair right now. <laughs> when I get home, I'm sitting in that chair. It's home. There is nothing more, as far as a place goes, about my house that is more my spot than that chair. And the way I feel when I sit in that chair is, this is where I belong. This is my spot. And when you enter into Christ's presence, when you are called to his eternal glory, that's your spot. That's where you feel more at home than you ever had before. 
when he confirms this is it. This is where you belong. That 80 years, that was a strange journey in a foreign land. But this is home. This is what eternal glory looks and feels like. And when we're there, we're strengthened by his strength. Like a flower in the sunlight, because that power is there. We now have all we need. We're weak in the world. We're weak in our flesh and our sin. But when we're called to his eternal glory, we are as strong as we could possibly be. There's no weakness left. No weakness left. There's no sin left. So now his strength is given to us in the greatest measure that we can bear. And we're established in that moment. We begin in that moment. This church, Pleasant Grove Baptist Church, was established in 1894. It was in that moment that this church became the fullness of who it was going to be. Everything didn't start then, though, at the peak, and then slowly dwindle over the past 130 years, right? It started then, it was established then, and it continues, it increases even today. It all starts, though, with being established. Your true life begins when you are established in the eternal glory of God in Christ. That's when you begin. This is prologue. This is pretext. This is the introduction, but that is the real thing. He will establish you and begin you anew in an existence that won't ever go away. And all of this comes because as his people, we are in the grace of God. We're in his dominion. We're a part of his kingdom. That's what verse 11 says. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That we're called into his eternal glory, his dominion. So let that dominion increase. Let that dominion be true forever and ever. So now it's to that kingdom that we devote our current lives. It's to that kingdom that we truly belong, and that dominion will be forever and ever. The grace is given to church members. They make us gracious people. It allows us the humility to bear with one another, to love one another, to cover a multitude of each other's sins. His grace toward us, it makes us gracious warriors. We're in a battle. We're in a fight against our adversary, the devil, but we're not like grizzled about it. We're not hardened by it. We're firm in our faith, knowing that this suffering is a present condition. It is only a little while until we're called into his eternal glory. And it's because we're in his grace, because we are a special part of his dominion as his people, that we can look forward to the day when he himself will restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish us in his eternal glory forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the, the grace to which you've called us, by which we are saved. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which enabled us to enter into this grace, into your eternal glory. And thank you for calling us into that glory, for giving us new hearts, for giving us the faith that we needed, for allowing us to repent and believe in your gospel. But now that we're in, continue to give that grace to us. Continue to confirm us, to establish us, to make us a people of grace who exhibit grace toward everyone that we're around, 
who show it to everyone that we interact with, who live it out in our interactions with each other. Help us to be gracious warriors, to, to fight the battle that we're in, to resist the devil, firm in our faith. Give us that grace. And help for us to remember, to know that we are in your grace now and we will be forever. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.